Well, good morning, everyone. I'm Pastor Allen. We're so glad that you're joining us, whether in person or online, whether live or later in the week. We're in a series called You're Not Far. Maybe you're feeling God's kind of distant. Um, maybe you feel disconnected from God. Well, this series is about no. <laughs> Even if you are, uh, you're not far from being reconnected or connected in a, in a greater way. Today's topic is psychics. Now, if I, let me ask you, how many of you consider yourself a psychic? I didn't get any hands in the first service. I don't think I'm going to get any of this in. I'm going to try to make a case this morning that you all think you are, at times. Anyway, I think it's an interesting facet of our uh, human nature. And it, based on this statement here, faith, whether it's Christianity or some other faith, often, very often, deteriorates as our circumstances deteriorate, our confidence f- begins to fall as our circumstances become negative and it becomes replaced by, best word I could come up with was the word fear. Uh, my faith is replaced with fear. And this fear turns us all into psychics because we all think we know what's going to happen. We all predict, well, you know, because of the election, we know the country's going to go downhill or Go uphill, depending on which side of the aisle you're on. Uh, Because of the pandemic, uh, all our worlds have been changed, right? Never going back the way it was. But we are predicting it's going to be worse, right? Or almost all of us are. We're all psychics. We think we know what the future holds. And uh, we're looking at the life uh, account of Peter, of life of Jesus. And Peter understands this. And when we get to the end of the teaching this morning, we're going to see an incident in Jesus, uh, Peter's life with Jesus that demonstrates that Peter and his other disciples thought they knew the future. So this account is of Jesus of Nazareth, this, uh, this uh, eight-week study. Uh, this is a Jesus that lived in Nazareth 2,000 years ago. And probably the most famous historical figure Uh, most written about, certainly, uh, historical figure that we have. Uh, It's not his story, I mean his accounting of the story. It's Peter, or Simon Peter, one of the disciples' account of his experience with Jesus. Now, he probably wrote this like 30 years later. And so he's looking back, he's thinking back, and he's remembering or recounting uh, what he considered important, the most important things. So we've been looking at this... uh, chronologically, and since Peter was probably an uneducated man, he didn't write this. He probably dictated it to John Mark, and so we call it the Gospel of Mark. Now, this is important to us, most of us, because none of us are Jews, and John Mark wasn't a Jew. So he's telling Peter, who is a Jew's account, and I'm sure he's questioning him, okay, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm not a Jew, explain this to me, I don't understand this, help me understand. And so, that's one reason I like the Gospel of Mark. We also said that he's not writing the Bible. <laughs> he's writing his memoirs, he's writing a, his journal about uh, his, his experience with Jesus. So if you kind of have a negative view of the Bible, <laughs> the Bible didn't exist for like 300 more years. So, this is, a, we're reading somebody's journal. <laughs> Uh, personal experiences with a historical character by the name of Jesus. <clears throat> now, he starts off by telling us what Jesus' basic message was, and it's different than 
Christianity has today because of the event we're going to be celebrating in two weeks. So Jesus' message to the people, the Jewish people, the time promised by God has come at last. What's the promise? Well, the Messiah is going to come. It's been over a thousand years they've been waiting, long time. He said the wait is over. Isn't that exciting? <laughs> waiting over a thousand years, and now the time has come. The kingdom of God is near. It's almost here. So your response, my response should be to repent of my sins and believe the good news. And everybody was invited, not just Jews. Like I said, Mark's a, a Greek writing this. Everybody's invited to this new kingdom that is not far, but near. Now, we've been showing you a map each week of the nation of Israel at that time. And Jesus was born and, and grew up and did most of his ministry in that yellow part up top, which is called Galilee. It's about uh, 90 miles from there to Jerusalem, where last week we saw him travel down to Jerusalem, uh, a specific time of the year, this time of the year, Passover time, um, coincides with our Easter, the biggest holiday in Judaism. They're celebrating uh, oh, being set free from over 400 years of slavery in Egypt. And most of you know the story of uh, Moses uh, bringing the Israelites out of Egypt. So that's what they're, they're celebrating. And so they happened every year for a thousand, over a thousand years. And Jesus is headed to Jerusalem, which is the center of Judaism. And so this, the city was packed. The, the most crowded the city is all year long was during uh, uh, the Passover. But before he gets there, just before he gets there, he does this. He tells his disciples, who they're getting excited, that it's going to get close. We're going we're to be in power. And he tells his disciples, my kingdom operates a little bit different. In fact, we said last week, it's upside down. And... Uh, he said, it's going to be different in my kingdom. Instead of the people with power going to exert their power to, to control the people under them, it's going to be different. We're going to flip it. And so those of us with authority are going to use our authority to help the people under us. And he said, just in case you want to push back against that, you want to reject that idea, um, just in case you think you're better than me, <laughs> Jesus said this. This is one of my uh, life verses. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve others. Not just to serve them, but to give his life as a ransom for many, for everyone. So anytime you and I get tired of serving, or I don't think we should serve, or we should, somebody else should be serving us, let's be, let's be reminded that our Lord and Savior Jesus told us that's not why he came, so that's not why, why, why we're here. So we're going to fast forward to Passover week. They're entering the city. We call this the triumphal entry of Jesus. Not only have the crowds have been following him, but there's all these, this crowd in, in uh, Jerusalem. So he enters Jerusalem, and the text says this, Many in the crowd spread their garments on the road ahead of him, and others spread leafy branches they cut in the fields. So there's all this excitement. There's all this energy. There's all this... Uh, I kind of thought of like when the ball drops on, on Times Square on New Year's Eve. <laughs> it's this, that kind of uh, activity and, and crowding and bustle. And uh, even greater than New Year's Eve, is, this is a, a religious holiday, a spiritual holiday. <clears throat> so the text goes on. Those who were ahead, went ahead of him, excuse me, 
And those who followed shouted, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David, meaning the Messiah, going to descend from, from King David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Now, most of us know this word from songs, right? Uh, songs in church. But the word Hosanna literally means save now or rescue now. So what were they saying? <laughs> Jesus, save us or rescue us from the Romans. Set up your kingdom. Throw out the Romans. That's what they were saying. That's what they were proclaiming. And can you imagine how excited the disciples were? We're about to get there. We're about to get <laughs> to be important people and have power and authority. I don't know how much they remember, but Jesus just told them about serving others. So Jesus goes into, into Jerusalem. Uh, even today, the inner city is not very big. certainly wasn't big in our sense. So he goes into Jerusalem, heads to the temple, the most important place. He looks around <laughs> carefully at everything, kind of scopes out the scene. He left because it was late in the afternoon. So the day is over, not much time to do much else. And he returned to Bethany with the 12 disciples. So all 12 disciples are there. Bethany's less than two miles away, so it's a short trip. And he's outside of the city, spends the night. Excuse me. Comes back to the city in the morning. And... Uh, he does something that I'm sure just exasperated the disciples. He goes in, some of you know the story, he goes into the temple and there's money changers in there uh, for the offerings, uh, sacrifices. And Jesus turns the money changers' tables over and he said, my house was supposed to be a house, of, he calls it my house, God's house, uh, house of prayer and you've made it a den of thieves. Now I'm thinking, <laughs> the disciples are thinking, wait a minute, wait a minute. The temple's the center of Judaism. If you're the Messiah, you're going to set up your kingdom here, and the, the, the temple is going to be really important to us. What happens here? And so, what was the reaction of the priests, the religious leaders? The, religious, the leading priests and teachers of religious law heard what Jesus had done, so I didn't, most haven't seen it. They began planning what? How to kill him. We can't put up with this guy anymore. But what's the problem? Why, why couldn't they do it? Well, they're afraid of him because of the people were so amazed at his teaching. Now, the crowd loved Jesus, and if you're going to turn against Jesus, you're going to turn against the crowd, and you can't do that as, as, as a religious leader. Now, amazing to me was... They weren't amazed at his miracles, or maybe they were, but text doesn't say that. They were amazed at his teaching. Now, nobody's ever told me they were amazed at my teaching. Of course, I'm not Jesus. But they were amazed at his teaching. Anyway, another day goes by, and the next day comes, and Jesus is teaching, telling a story. We call them parables. And in this story, he talks about <clears throat> uh, some wicked farmers. Now, we're going to look at a parable in a couple of weeks, and I, one I like because Jesus tells us what it means. Preachers like myself read these parables, and we try and interpret what they mean. Well, this one didn't need interpretation, evidently, for the religious leaders, because the text says this. The, le the religious leaders wanted to arrest Jesus because they realized he was telling the story about them. <laughs> they were the wicked farmers, and they understood, and of course, they weren't very happy about it. But again, they were afraid of the crowd, so they left him I left him and went away and tried to come up with some plan or some scheme to uh, turn the people against Jesus. So later, text goes on, 
later, later that day probably, later the leaders sent some Pharisees, that's one branch of the religious leaders, who supported uh, and supporters of Herod to try and trap Jesus into saying something he could be arrested, saying something that would turn the crowd against him. Now, as we look at this instance, most of us have probably missed the brilliance of Jesus and how he handles this situation. It's just, it's just brilliant. So, Pharisees come to Jesus. Teacher, they said, we know how honest you are. You are impartial and don't play favorites. You teach the way of God truthfully. So what are they doing? Just like your kids do when they want something from you, right? They are buttering you up. And so they're buttering Jesus up uh, with, of course, wrong intentions. <laughs> and, of course, Jesus knows what's going on. He's, he's, he's smart. He says, now I tell you, <clears throat> this is the question first. Now I tell you, now, now tell us, excuse me. Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not, the emperor, Roman emperor, or should we pay them or shouldn't we? Now, everybody was required to pay this tax. It was equivalent to one day's pay. And if you were a citizen of, uh, if you were a Jew, you had to pay it. And everybody hated it because it signified the fact that the Romans were, you were subject to the Romans. They were in control and you weren't. And so you had to pay this money to them. And so they came up with this question for Jesus. And it's actually a really good question. It's really a tough question. It looks like they've kind of truly trapped him because it's kind of a lose-lose situation. I'll put that on the, on, the, on the outline or on the screen. If he says yes, pay the taxes, what happens? Well, he's in trouble with all the Jewish patriots that, that hate the tax and hate the Romans. And if you're the Messiah, you certainly aren't going to support giving money to the Romans. <clears throat> on the other hand, if he says no, you shouldn't be paying the tax. Well, you're going to get in trouble with Rome because that was a requirement by Roman law that everybody in, in Jerusalem or Judea pays this tax. So it's kind of a lose-lose situation for Jesus. It appears, right? So here we see some of the brilliance of Jesus. <clears throat> First, he sees their hypocrisy. He understands what they're trying to do. And he even says, why are you trying to trap me? Why are you trying to trick me? Why are you trying to get me to, to, to say something to get, to get me in trouble? <clears throat> so he says, show me a Roman coin, and then I'll tell you. Now, here's the significant thing. Evidently, Jesus puts his hands in his pocket and doesn't have any of these coins. So he says, you, Pharisees, show me one of these Roman coins. And I'll answer your question. And so it goes on. When they handed it to him, so it wasn't his coin, it was their coin. He asked, whose picture and title are stamped on it? And they replied, Caesar's. Now, now we don't understand this, but if you were there, you understood at this point Jesus had already won. <laughs> and, and why do you say that? Well, <clears throat> here's why. Jewish law, especially the Ten Commandments, said you are not to have any graven image, correct? No idols or graven images uh, uh, of, of anybody or anything, especially of any other God. One of the top Ten Commandments. 
Well, let me show you the coin. Here's a picture of the coin. Actually, you can buy these coins. It costs a few thousand dollars, but you can actually buy these coins uh, today. Can we get that on the screen? <clears throat> there it is. All right, on the one side, Tiberius is, the, is Caesar at this point. That's his picture. And on that side of the coin, it says Caesar is God or Caesar is divine. All right. So consequently, this coin is what? A graven image. Actually, on the other side, it said he is a high priest. So <laughs> these religious leaders had a graven image on their person in the temple, on the temple mount. <laughs> They've committed a, a, a grievous sin and didn't even realize it. And Jesus was able to trap them by asking them for the coin. Just, just so brilliant. A <laughs> uh, little backstory. Five years earlier, they had brought what were called shields into uh, Jerusalem with Tiberius's uh, image on it. And the people got so upset. It wasn't even in the temple. People got so upset, they, they just sat down and stopped, refused to work. And it got so bad that they had to remove move the image. So, after they accused themselves by uh, possessing these coins, Jesus says to them, Give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar, and give to God what belongs to God. And, of course, this reply completely amazed them. They were speechless. <clears throat> so, the Pharisees had their try as, as other incidents where uh, one group of le religious leaders would ask Jesus a question and another group would try. And it's the same thing here. The Sadducees, we say they're sad because they didn't believe in the resurrection. They didn't believe in life after death. You just serve God here on earth and you die. So, the Sadducees come to Jesus and they had this ridiculous story. According to Jewish law, if uh, a lady's husband dies and she doesn't have any children, his brother, if he has brothers, is supposed to marry her so she can have some children. He could have some descendants. Well, in this hypothetical story, they said, a husband dies, she marries a brother, and he dies, and she must have been really bad luck because all seven of them died. He married seven of them, and they all died, and then she dies, and the question is, Who's going to be her husband in heaven? Okay, that's the hypothetical question. And Jesus responds. I'm just going to give you one verse of his response. Remember, these are religious leaders. They, they spend their life being religious. They spend their life studying Scripture. And Jesus replies to them, your mistake is you don't know the Scriptures. <laughs> you're a failure, right? What your job is, to do, what you're supposed to be doing. And you don't know the power of God. So they were unsuccessful turning the crowd against Jesus. And then Jesus, another guy, uh, uh, religious leader, comes to Jesus and asks him a question, what's the greatest commandment? And Jesus said to love God and love other people. And, and then Jesus' response to this man is this. And this is significant for our series. He says, realizing how much the man understood, Jesus said to him, you are what? <laughs> You're not far. From the kingdom of God. Kingdom of God is not far from you. It's closer than you think. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. And then in the text, there's some more, more teachings, and we're going to pick up the story in chapter 13. 
As Jesus was leaving the temple that day, one of the disciples said, Teacher, look at these magnificent buildings. Look at the impressive stones in the wall. Now, you need to understand something. This was a huge project of building or rebuilding the temple. And they started about 20 B.C., and so we're now about 30 A.D., and the temple still wasn't finished, even though it was very impressive in, in Jesus' day. It literally wasn't finished to 64 A.D. It took 84 years to build this temple. And it, it had some of these stones that weighed not 500 pounds, but 500 tons, just huge stones. It, it was a magnificent structure. It cost, uh, 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 <clears throat> excuse me, um, the king, <laughs> anyway, uh, tons of money. And so the disciples said, hey, look at that, how great this temple is. <clears throat> and Jesus has this response to it. He says, you see all these great buildings? Not one stone here will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. And this is an amazing prophecy because <laughs> this building was supposed to be earthquake-proof. So how else, <laughs> how else is this magnificent temple going to be destroyed. It had to be literally taken apart. It was built. It would have to be taken apart. Now, here's a picture. These, some of these stones are still there 2,000 years later. We actually, this is not our picture, but we actually saw these stones two years ago. So Jesus makes this prophecy, this specific prophecy <laughs> that became true in 70 A.D., six years after the temple was finished. The, uh, the Jews rebelled, the Romans came in, they besieged the city of Jerusalem. In August, they breached the walls, they went in and destroyed the whole city, including the temple, burned everything they could, and they destroyed the temple. The stones were actually thrown down, and you know how they got done? The soldiers just didn't do it. You know who did it? The, the Jewish slaves. So the Jews literally had to dismantle their own temple. Now, here's the thing significant about what Jesus is talking about, the temple, is this. This is recorded in Matthew. I tell you that something greater than the temple is here. Well, they couldn't imagine what that is. <clears throat> but he said that the temple's obsolete. God's not going to be restricted to this building. God's going to come and dwell in all of us, all of you that are believers. So I put on your outline, you and I, anyone that that wants to enter in a relationship with the living God, we are more sacred to God than a temple. We're walking, talking temples is another way of saying that. So God dwells in us. We are holy, sacred. And then there's some more teaching in the text. And then Judas goes off and makes plans to betray Jesus. And then we get to that until Thursday night of Passover uh, celebration. So it's on the first day of the uh, festival of unleavened bread, when you act, literally the Passover lamb is sacrificed. Jesus' disciples ask him, "Where do you want us to go prepare the Passover meal for you?" And so Jesus answers. He gives them instructions. He says, <clears throat> "The two of them to go in Jerusalem with these instructions." As you go into the city, a man carrying a pitcher of water will meet you. Follow him. Now, again, there's just people everywhere, wall to wall, uh, shoulder to shoulder, and hustle and bustle. And Jesus sends them in there to find this guy. And there's no sign, like in the airport, Mr. You know, 
Mr. Jesus, <laughs> uh, how are they going to find this guy? Well, it's really significant because who carries the water in their culture, even cultures today? Who carries the water? Who knows? The ladies carry the water, right? You can see pictures in Africa today. The ladies carry It's rare for a man to be carrying water. So this was really significant. Jesus, they could find this guy because he kind of stood out in the crowd because men don't usually carry water. So they connect, they make arrangements, and so the text goes on in the evening, Jesus arrives with the 12. Judas is there, and all 12 of them are there. And then we, we're going to read the text where he institutes what we refer to as communion of the Lord's Supper. As they were eating, again, this is the Passover meal, the, the most sacred and, and, and important holiday in Judaism. Jesus took some bread and blessed it. That was part of the meal. He broke it in pieces and gave it to the disciples, saying, take it, for this is my body. Now, I'm sure they're sitting there scratching their head. What is he talking about? This is in his body. This is, represents the, the meal that the Jews ate the last night in Egypt. <clears throat> Text goes on. And he took a cup of wine and gave thanks to God for it. And he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. So what Jesus is doing is taking this sacred meal that's over a thousand years old and saying, it's no longer about Moses and, and God delivering the, the Israelites out of Egypt. It's about me. <laughs> now, that would be blasphemy, unless you were Jesus, God. And then he finishes up, and he says to them, this is my blood. Again, what are you talking about, Jesus? Which confirms the covenant between God and his people. It is poured out as a sacrifice for many. So a covenant is like a contract. You have two parties. In this case, God's on one side. Who's on the other side? Is it just Jews? No. Jesus didn't just die for Jews. He died for everyone. So this is a contract or covenant. It's different. It's new. New and improved. It's better. This is once and for all, and it's done for all mankind. And after this, Jesus is upset. Uh, Judas has gone off. Jesus is upset. He, he goes with the other disciples out to the Garden of Gethsemane. It's just a walk down a hill. <laughs> it's really close. We, we were there, like I said, two years ago. <clears throat> he goes off to pray and uh, asks the disciples to pray. They fall asleep. And, and Jesus, of course, is agonizing before his father. And then eventually some, some soldiers come with some torches, right? And who's out in front of these, of these soldiers but Judas? And they get, get to Jesus, and Jesus asks them, am I some dangerous revolutionary that you come with swords and clubs to arrest me? And if you read the text, Peter cuts off one of the servants' ears. Uh, some experts think he was trying to get Jesus. Can you imagine? I mean, Judas, uh, the betrayer. He spent, you know, he's one of, one of the 12, and now you're leading this, these folks to arrest our master, Jesus. Uh, and, of course, Jesus heals the man's ear. And the text goes on, Why didn't you arrest me in the temple? I've been there all week, teaching every day. Uh, well, because the crowds were there, right? <clears throat> Wouldn't have been a popular thing to do. There's no crowds around this evening. And then at this point, Peter, this is Peter's account, Peter loses all hope. 
Messiahs don't get arrested. This has all been a, a dream, a sham. I can't help but think the same thing about us at times. When our circumstances aren't what we would like, does our hope leave? In this case, all the disciples, all 11, deserted him and ran away. It's over. We're not going to rule. We're not throwing the Romans out of our country. So, again, faith often deteriorates as our circumstances deteriorate. We assume, assume the worst, and fear begins to grip us. And we all become psychics. We, we think we know what the future is going to hold. And Peter, if he was here, could say to us, I, I believe the lie. I believe that, that it was over, that the, Jesus wasn't the, wasn't the Messiah, that God is not near. In fact, God maybe is not a, exists at all. But in reality, at that very moment, God was as active as he's ever been in history, bringing about the possibility for the redemption of all mankind. So, God is near. You're not far. Not then, not now. So, let me ask you something to think about. Does your faith and my faith fluctuate with our circumstances? And the text for next week is going to be the crucifixion. Um, it would be great if you'd read it ahead of time, and hopefully you can join us. Let's pray. Uh, Father God, thank you for this historical account. We thank you for the brilliance of Jesus. That no one could trap him. <laughs> no one could force him to do what he didn't want to do. Yet he was willing to do what you, Father, asked him to do. Allow himself to be arrested and taken to the cross and to suffer and die. <clears throat> and as we examine our own lives, do we, is our faith so weak that it, that it fluctuates with our circumstances? God, do we think that you're such a small God that you're not in control? Forgive us if that's our, our, our belief. And so this last year has been tough. And things will never be like they were before. But why do we think that's going to be worse? God, you're still in control. You're still almighty God. <laughs> and so what do we need to learn? What do we need to do better? Let us face future with faith or with hope. Because you, God, the tomb is empty. You're alive. We want to pray for anyone that may be wrestling with this concept of, of faith. That they would take a step closer and realize, God, that you're not far and they're, they're not far in their faith. And if they would just take that step, they could enter in a personal relationship with you. <clears throat> we thank you, God, that you make it that easy. There's nothing we can do other than accept or receive the gift. Thank you, God, for your grace and your mercy. Uh, and we thank you for all these things. In Jesus' name, amen.